0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Pass Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpassrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I am your host, Jackie Pack. And today's podcast episode, I want to talk about triggers. It's been on my list of possible topics for a while now. And, you know, I was supposed to record this weekend another podcast episode with Ethan. And then he had something come up um, that he had to attend to. And so we're actually just going to flip and I will be recording with Ethan next weekend, and instead I'm going to do this podcast episode that I have been thinking about and have had on my list of possible topics, which is talking about triggers, and then I'll record with him, and you'll get that out next week. So I'm just flipping these two podcasts, and I had a good response to... Listeners who were introduced to Ethan for the first time ever, really, on the podcast, and are happy that he's going to be a continuing guest or a regular guest. He'll be a monthly guest on the show. And the plan is actually for us to start out. We started out talking about trauma informed therapy, and we're going to do a three or four part series talking about trauma. And so I think you'll look forward to that. And enjoy some of the content and the discussions that we have. If you have any questions or particular things you would like us to address, feel free to email me those questions. Best way to probably contact me is at my email, Jackie, J-A-C-K-I-E at JackiePack, dot com. And I'll get that there. And then we can incorporate that into the content that we are discussing. So today I wanted to talk about triggers because they happen and I also want to talk about maybe ways that they get misused or that they're possibly misunderstood. You know, we know that triggers are biological. They're recognized as something in the medical field that we recognize them in the psychological field. But I think often they get thrown around or they get tossed around in the general public as is wanting to do, and they can be thrown around in a way that is not accurate and even can feel dismissive for some people. And so I want to be sure that the way that we think of or talk about triggers is more clearly understood and maybe that information can start to leak out to the general public so that we can be better educated and talk about triggers differently. And if that's happening for you or for your spouse, you can have more of an understanding and maybe some emotional empathy for your partner when the triggers come up. So again, that's what I've been wanting to talk about in this podcast episode. And, you know, I will say for the clients that we work with at the clinic that I own, the clients that we see, we often have to do some psycho ed around triggers because, you know, we commonly are working with sex addicts and their betrayed partners. And, you know, sometimes I will say our addicts are not as aware of the triggers that happen to them. Partners generally are aware of it, or, you know, their addicted partner makes them aware of it, but it still might be misunderstood. And so... You know, we know it doesn't just happen with addiction, though. Uh, we it doesn't just happen with partners of addiction. I would say, if you have triggers, and I'll get into that definition of triggers, it it's more indicative of unresolved trauma. So what are triggers? Well, triggers are often in the environment, right? I would say they can be physical, they can be emotional you know, they can happen to us on a variety of levels in our own body. They're basically something in the environment that leads to a trigger that then causes a reactivation of a traumatic event. So, you know, this can lead to, or it can include the symptoms of trauma or PTSD, often include intrusive memories, a reliving of the trauma. There might be sleep disturbances, nightmares, a feeling of dread or a feeling of hopelessness or powerlessness. And you know, it can lead to some hypervigilance. And if you have listened to my podcast episodes, it's probably not new to you to hear me talk about the window of tolerance. So you'll understand this language where we maybe become hyper aroused or we might instead go downward and be hypo aroused. So this is what the triggers do. I will say up front, this isn't a choice. This is not a conscious choice. And therefore, triggers are not manipulation. That's not the same thing. And they're not gaslighting. So I do want to kind of throw those out the window right now at the top of this episode that that's not what we're talking about. Triggers are not gaslighting and they're not manipulation, forms of a manipulation. You might notice that in yourself that these triggers happen. You might notice it for your partner. You might notice that, you know, just people you interact with on a daily basis or a weekly basis or whatever, you may become aware that. Oh, I think they're getting triggered or they, you know, you start to see them become triggered and now you understand the meaning of that. And I think you're understanding that, you know, what is happening in the body can be understood best as through this lens of looking at these as like triggers. So I think another common misunderstanding about triggers is that if We get triggered. Somebody is doing something that is wrong or bad or threatening to us. It might be true, but it could also not be true, right? What we know is that if these triggers happen to me in the present, they're kind of like I'm time traveling back to these previous times in my story where something traumatic happened to me. Now, that could be a year ago, that could be two months ago, that could be, you know, 10 years ago or more. So it's kind of this, I often will say it's, it's a confusion of where I am, you know, I might have some realization that I'm in my here and now that I'm in my present. And yet, these emotions can be really big, they can be quite intrusive, they immerse us, And so it feels like it's happening right there in that present moment. And again, the very definition of a trigger is that it reactivates something from the past. So, I mean, there might be something, you know, I usually will say, I think our nervous system operates or our threat system, which is part of our nervous system. Our threat system operates on a better safe than sorry mode. So it's basically like, yeah, I could get a lot of things inaccurate, but I'm going to keep you alive. And which I think is a better alternative than the opposite of that, which is I'm going to be very precise and I'll most likely get 100% right. But you also might die in while I'm, you know, dialing that in and being really precise. So it's good that it's happening on a better safe than sorry modality. That also means that, you know, it can be trigger happy, you know, my, my threat system might get activated when there's no current threat, like I'm safe. I'm, you know, maybe I'm like, I'm sitting in my house or I'm sitting at my desk at work and I'm okay. Why would I not feel okay here? And, you know, I think sometimes that leads clients to feel like, oh, there must be some impending doom. I know for me earlier in my life, like I would say to my husband, like, I just feel like something really bad is going to happen. And like, I didn't understand it myself. I mean, this is, you know, prior to me becoming a therapist, I was in grad school and I would describe that at the time. And, you know, sure, in a given year, bad things did happen, but I was aware that like, I didn't have that feeling of impending doom as often as bad things happened, if that makes sense. So it was definitely happening, you know, more often than it it was not. And it wasn't accurate. It just, it wasn't the, the when it happened, when I had that sense of impending doom, it usually wasn't accurate. So I think sometimes that's helpful to understand. I think another way that I've heard it talked about, just in the general public is kind of a, like, if something is, uncomfortable for me, or I'm feeling more of the negative emotions or emotions that cause me discomfort, then I'm being triggered. And no, that's not the case. That's not how we look at triggers. You know, I think all of our emotions happen on a continuum and all of our emotions are valid and we might have a higher tolerance for some than others. You know, I don't really enjoy embarrassment as an emotion. It has happened to me more than once. I'm sure it will continue to happen because sometimes that happens. And that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. You know, I've learned to regulate myself so I it doesn't then lead to a bunch of shame and I go into this, you know, I go over the cliff in my shame and this negative downward spiral that doesn't happen to me, but I don't particularly enjoy that emotion. Nobody's at fault. Typically, when that happens, even me, I'm not necessarily at fault. There's nobody really to blame. I also don't really love feeling nervousness. Um, Nervousness is uncomfortable for me. I don't like feeling that also nobody's to blame for that. You know, I have things to do. Usually when I'm feeling nervous, I've got some, maybe even some good things going on. Like, if I'm going to be doing a presentation, right before it's time to go, to go live and present or, you know, go to the front of the room or whatever that looks like. I might, you know, maybe 15 minutes before I might start with that, the nerves hit, and I experience some nervousness. And now I have a routine in place that I typically will go through to make sure that the nervousness doesn't shut me down. If, if the nervousness persists, I know I tend to talk way too fast. I'll trip over my words. My breathing isn't great. Cause again, I'm nervous, you know, and so I'll, I'll practice like just grounding myself, reminding myself, I know this content. I've prepared for this. I might kind of just go over it in my mind, get to intro this way. Then we're going to go here. Then I'm going to go here. Here's what I want people to take away from this presentation. And I'm doing breathing, deeper breathing, belly breathing while I'm kind of mindfully going through the presentation. Some grounding, calming, kind of getting in my zone so that then I can go ahead and I can present another emotion that I commonly hear is, you know, for some people, anger is pretty uncomfortable for them. There might be some messaging that they got throughout their life from different systems, family system, maybe religious system, maybe that says like, not only should you be uncomfortable with anger, but it's bad or it's wrong or it's against God, different things like that. And I I still would say, no, it's anger is just an emotion. All of our emotions happen on a continuum. It might make us uncomfortable, some of the emotions, especially if they've been, we've been told that having and expressing or acknowledging that we feel a certain way leads to disconnection or leads to a feeling of being judged. And, you know, we're just kind of told something is wrong with us when we feel a certain way. And, you know, I I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think that that's accurate. But I think people... Some of that false messaging around the emotions. Anger is one that often comes with some false messaging. And so, you know, I I usually will say we should not just act out our anger, because I think that doesn't usually, that's not productive, that's not helpful. But when we're acting on our anger, when we are aware that we're having anger and you know, to me, a lot of times what that means is, I need to maybe address something, speak up to something, I might need to beware, I might need to realize a boundary needs to be in place here, something like that. And so then I can advocate for that or address that as I need to. And I I think that's more acting on my anger, and kind of getting curious about what my anger is prompting me to do. And then being able to do that. But you know, anger is certainly one of the misunderstood emotions, and there's several misunderstood emotions. One of the ways that we start to really, in addition to like getting into window of tolerance, and if you're newer to the podcast, I have a lot of episodes talking about emotional regulation and window of tolerance, and I'm not going to get into that specifically in this podcast, I'll reference it. But you know, you might want to search other episodes for more of that if that's a new concept. It's also available on Google, right to just go Google window of tolerance and read about that and increase your own understanding of that. I think the other thing that you know, we can do when when we are triggered is, you know, if we've had some emotional regulation, we've been in therapy for a while, we hopefully have developed an inner observer, and so we can notice what's happening in our body, which is typically where triggers start. They're not just starting in the brain. You know, the brain will definitely pick up what's going on in the body. And our brain definitely follows what's happening in the body, but it's not simply originating in our brain. So again, the importance of having this inner observer that's noticing what's happening in the body like I said, which is typically where things start. And so, again, let's just talk about with triggers. I mean, triggers are, yes, they are happening in our present. It's happening right now. Or, you know, it could have happened five days ago, but it's more in our current state than it is in our past state, right? Like, I mean, but it is taking us back to a past event Taking us back to a past unresolved trauma. And that's what actually is getting triggered and then leads to you re experiencing the trauma, you having these intense emotional outbursts or responses, maybe being highly dysregulated, you know, feeling like you're not safe, feeling like. With some of my clients, they feel a lot of shame. They're just kind of like bathing in shame. It depends on the past trigger, the past traumatic event. But that's what we're talking about when triggers happen. Is there something that happens in the environment that triggers this past traumatic event? And then we have the emotional responses connected to this past traumatic event. We have them in the present. So I hope I made that clear. Now, you know, I think it's important to say nobody may be doing anything intentionally to to make you feel this way. You know, they're not intentionally trying to step right in the middle of that unresolved wound because they're an asshole. They might not even be aware that you have that wound. So I do think it's helpful to have partners develop awareness of triggering events in their spouse's life. I also think it's really important for ourselves to become more aware with our emotional landscape, our life narrative, and where there are some of those landmines that we could get stuck in and where there's just, you know, these moments in our life where there was significant trauma happening. I, I mean, I say significant, which whether we're talking about like big T trauma or little T trauma, it's still significant like trauma. I will often say like trauma happens on a continuum, but to be clear, not everybody moves through the whole width and the depth of that continuum. Right. And for some people, I think there's relatively low movement on that continuum. They just haven't experienced a lot of trauma and you know, that's great. That's great. And some have been all over that continuum. And so I think it's important to remember that, you know, for the most part, probably nobody is intentionally trying to make you feel this way. Now, you can certainly have parents who have not taken accountability or done their own work and they do not understand. And so they keep saying the same things over to you over and over again that are part of that original trauma, right? And yeah. Yeah. I think you would feel that every time that they bring that up. It makes sense to me. I don't know that they're intentionally trying to hurt you or intentionally being mean, but I certainly can see how it feels that way to you. And, you know, it may not really be worth it to unpack that with them and say like, hey, when you keep saying these things to me, here is what that brings up in my life. Like they just may not have the understanding to know what to do with that if you said that. So they might deny it. They might be like, well, that's not what I mean at all. Why do you take it that way? You know, so they're shifting that responsibility to you instead of taking accountability themselves. And sometimes too, I mean, I think you can have like a boss who gets upset or even rages. Like I wouldn't say for me as a boss, I'm really a rage. I'm not really a rager as a person. I mean, not surprisingly, I had one of my, well, both of my parents actually, who would rage. And that's just not something I've continued. I don't do that. Sometimes I get upset, right? And I will hear from staff like, oh my gosh, it triggered a fight. I felt like my mom and dad were fighting. Or I felt like, I don't try to do that very often. But sometimes like just being in an authority position as the boss or the owner, and if I'm upset with things and I'm expressing that, I understand that that might trigger things for my employees. Or I remember years ago, I was reading a book. I don't remember if it was an autobiography, like the person was writing it themselves about themselves, or if it was more of a biography that somebody else wrote their life story. I couldn't even tell you who it was, or this particular moment. Obviously, I mean, I don't, I, I usually read biographies of people that I think are interesting or I look up to, I might admire, and I don't know. I'll read you know biographies from time to time. Sometimes I have clients who will ask me to read a particular autobiography or biography, and I'll do that. This was not a client suggested to me. This was just one that I was reading. well, actually I was it was it was a while ago. It was shortly after becoming a therapist. And I was going to a young adult, no, not young adult. They were teens. They were a teen boys camp. You know, they were all court ordered for substance abuse issues. This particular weekend, I think they were going to be at this camp and I had been invited to be a guest speaker. So I was, you know, heading on up there to the camp and I had this book on tape because, you know, it's the 90s. That's how we could listen to books. And I was listening to it on my drive. And I couldn't even tell you what the behavior was. But whatever they were describing, whether it was the person or his biographer, they were talking about this particular, maybe idiosyncrasy that this person did, or I think they referenced it like, let me think if I can remember the word. Uh, it's escaping me, but just like this trait about their dad. And my dad did the same behavior that they did, right? Now, the family did not feel the same about their dad's behavior that I did about my dad's behavior. You know, some, some, I mean, my dad could be, let like me, my, my dad was not a functional person, he was not a healthy person. Or a loving, caring person. He was abusive. He was violent. And then he just did these things that, you know, maybe fell into neutral more, more neutral behaviors there. They in and of themselves are not right, wrong, good, bad. And I, I wasn't aware of that at the time. So I'm listening to this book and yeah, I think it even quoted something one of his kids had said and how they described it or how they would joke about it, which, I mean, that right there, I would never joke with my dad about any of his behaviors because that just, like, we didn't have that relationship where we could joke, like, I had very limited contact with him because that made it safer or less likely for something to explode. And so in, you know, in this book, they're talking about, this behavior that their dad did, I would have been somewhere between the ages of 25 or 30. And so, you know, I had quite a bit of context about who my dad was. And overall, I would say I had concluded that he wasn't the greatest person. Um, he wasn't very functional, but I did find it interesting as I'm driving, I kind of had to stop the book and just think for a minute. Cause I definitely recognized this behavior and I recognized that my dad did this same thing. And it was just interesting to me that here's this other person that I must look up to enough that I'm sitting here listening to the book on tape about their life. And that's the word that I was looking for. They they were describing it as an endearing behavior of dads, right? And what something they just kind of smiled about or it just kind of made them laugh or grin, but it was endearing to them. And I mean... The same behavior in my dad was in no way endearing to me, but it made me aware that like, oh, this behavior per se isn't, it's just neutral. It's not positive or negative. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's not even functional or dysfunctional. It's just neutral. And then certainly. The other context that we have around this person will also help inform and shape our interpretation of this behavior. But I think that was one of the first times that I was like, oh, there is behavior that is neutral. It's just neutral. And we can, as human beings, start to bend it one way or the other. And sometimes we're right about that. Like we're not, we're not misapplying the context. Sometimes we are though. And so it was just interesting to see this as more of a neutral behavior. It's, you know, it's to be determined whether it's endearing or very off-putting. And it's largely determined by the person who's engaging in the behavior and the relationship we have with them or how our thoughts have evolved about this person. So I, I do think we see this currently in our political climate. We see this currently on a lot of different issues. I was watching a clip from The Daily Show, and they were they were out talking to people, and they were, you know, using like, hey, if so-and-so said this, what would you think, right? And they're using real quotes, but they're intentionally, they're mixing up the people who said them. And I mean, very quickly, you could see their political leanings based on how they responded to the quote you know so if they're left-leaning they're told that this is a left-leaning person who said if they're right-leaning they're told it's a right-leaning or it's the opposite it's the left-leaning candidate or left leaning representative that said it and they're like oh my gosh that's just awful or yeah that's fine and then when they're told oh wait wait you know the reporter would say oh wait wait i actually got that confused let me start over is actually this person who said it, which was the correct one. The second one was always the correct one. And they immediately had a different stance on that issue. Just seeing it as maybe in the realm of their beliefs or something they were also familiar with, or that they had this influence of like, this is right. And this is wrong and fascinating. And none of them even recognized how quickly their thinking shifted and, or that they had just heard the exact same quote and had been like, oh my gosh, so unstable, so bad, so whatever. And then hearing the same quote attributed to somebody that maybe aligns with their only means, like they didn't even have that awareness that like the quote had not changed. It was the exact same quote. What had changed is who they thought said it and their responses dramatically shifted that's good to be aware of right that like it is dependent on the person engaging in the behavior but it's also dependent on us and our relationship with them or how we view them or how we view ourselves so that's just helpful to understand when it comes to triggers and again i do think we have a tendency as human beings to oversimplify things I understand why we do that, but I will just say, as you've heard me say before, when it comes to human beings, oversimplification really misses the complexity that human beings have with them, that anybody, any, any human being is a complex person. And so when we start to oversimplify them, I think that's a way of objectifying them. It's a way of maybe diminishing them. And diminishing the threat, sure. But, you know, human beings are complex and we need to be understood with complexity. So, okay, let's get back to triggers. I will also say with triggers, we can't just create safety by, you know, creating an environment where we've eliminated any triggers from happening or thinking that we can set up this life that avoids us being triggered. Now, I will say sometimes when I'm working with couples and it's close to disclosure or discovery, maybe of the addiction itself, maybe of certain behaviors that they weren't aware of that happened in the acting out, sometimes it is helpful to, you know, create a scenario for a limited time period. I'm always like, okay, let's do that for this summer. Let's avoid this summer going to beaches or swim parks or just places where people in swimsuits exist right maybe we just take that off the table for now while we work on and get some traction and I'm not saying we never go to swim parks or we never go to beaches because that would just be really sad but you know maybe it's just too close and so we need to and and we don't have the skill set in place we haven't understood what's happening. And so let's just try not to make that happen while we work on getting some traction. And then we'll talk about how to bring that back in with a plan in place. So I don't think we can just, you know, completely avoid, or I've seen sometimes partners will get quite angry at other females that they, they don't know, or maybe they do know them and the swim attire that they choose to wear. And I'm not saying there aren't some women who have certain swimsuits that, yeah, there might be drawing attention to them. I'm saying if you're giving this much power to somebody who does that, or even assuming all women do that, again, that's oversimplification. We're missing the complexity in every human being. We're starting to objectify them. We do that for a reason. We're trying to, you know, control our own emotions. We're trying to create a sense of safety but that's not really going to lead us to safety. Because they're not actually the threat to you, right? They're not trying to be a threat to you. Again, maybe they're trying to get some attention. Okay. But I th- I think when we start to give them that much power, we're misunderstanding something about ourselves. We start to become part of the problem now. And so... You know, I I know some of the people who listen to my podcast don't necessarily identify as sex addicts or having had betrayal trauma the same way some of our clients do. Maybe they just have complex PTSD or they have childhood emotional neglect, which, you know, childhood emotional neglect is a form of complex PTSD. And so I think going in and starting to understand this and understanding that like, triggers aren't the problem but having unresolved issues that we keep reactivating and going back and reliving that is a problem that is exhausting and we don't have to live that way you know i i think there's some really good therapists out there who do good trauma work you know and i totally trust them to handle complex trauma You know, I also say to my staff, my staff has the same perspective. When we're working with addicts, there is complex trauma. And, you know, if I'm starting to work with a new client who I know has addiction tendencies, I'm typically starting by assuming that they have complex PTSD. I think for partners, discovering or having the addiction disclosed to you is in and of itself complex. And that's in addition to any trauma history you may have for yourself. And so maybe you don't have it, but you know, I, I think I'm also usually starting any new work with a partner by assuming that they probably also have some complex trauma. And again, you know, I was going to do an episode with Ethan about complex trauma, and then in my thinking, I was like, oh, and then I'll talk about triggers the next episode that I just do by myself, and that might be a nice segue into this podcast episode on triggers. And that didn't end up happening, which is fine. But I think understanding like when we're talking about complex trauma, we're talking about layers of trauma. So maybe I experienced some complex trauma, and that doesn't actually get resolved. And then another traumatic event happens. Or, you know, just it's happening frequently. So You know maybe every day i'm largely being ignored or every day i'm largely having to parent myself i mean that's a lot of frequency of trauma and so the layers of that start to build and there can't be any resolution so when in their adult life they find themselves in therapy we have layers of trauma work to do right and one layer intermixes with another layer intermixes with another layer just because they were not able to be resolved. And so I I think understanding, you know, that we need, when, when triggers are present, it's indicative that there needs to be more emotional regulation happening. And that there has been, there are reasons for the dysregulation. There are reasons for these triggers that reactivate traumas from the past. And that they have all of these symptoms associated with them. And, you know, sometimes for a lot of clients, the first relationship in which they start to feel safe and they can actually start to regulate themselves and have awareness is the relationship they have with their therapist. And that's fine. That's a good thing. And then from there, you know, once they start to have that and they start to recognize that in, in this office, with this person, with this therapist. I feel safe. I'm not judged. My therapist feels well-regulated. I don't get blamed for things. I know not all therapists are capable of that. Um, I'll just say I, I've heard the horror stories. And sometimes therapists do end up blaming clients for things that are not necessarily the client's fault. And And so unfortunately, sometimes that happens. I think that's often therapists who haven't done their own work but you know they they start to their nervous system starts to settle in this safe non-judgmental caring space and then they start to make connections with other people who have similar backgrounds or are also working on themselves in similar ways that they are they start to gravitate towards safe people or safer people it's not uncommon You know, for me to see some of these connections happen in group settings, if they're doing group therapy, they start to maybe really open up and and gain some traction by these, you know, having another safe environment in which they can work and understand themselves and understand others that is not judgmental or that feels safe to them. And, and that's why I'm a big believer in group therapy. I know there's a lot of research that just, especially with addiction or betrayal trauma or healing complex trauma that talks about the benefit of group therapy and that there's a level of healing that happens in group therapy that can't happen in that dual dynamic of just therapist and client. And so I think that's a good thing. And sometimes it's not uncommon to hear about some minor disruptions among group members. Occasionally, I've had it just a few times where there's a conflict that kind of disrupts or unsettles everyone in the group. Much more often, it's usually one or two people that run into some issues. And, you know, if I'm their therapist, I want to be hearing about it. And I, I don't step in to fix it for them. But I'm usually, you know, encouraging them to address it and helping them to understand what happened to them and how they might address that in healthier ways, in ways that are going to lead them to healing instead of just a repetition of their traumatic past. You know, in the past, maybe there was an interruption or a disruption in our attachment. And that can happen again. And if that happened in the past, it's probably going to happen again. But can we have a different experience? now you know under maybe the help and guidance of a therapist or group therapists to reestablish that attachment and that safety whether that's coming from a misunderstanding a miscommunication or actual conflict can we do it in a way that actually is helpful and healing instead of just more of the same old same old trauma so i want to talk for a minute about PTSD, and PTSD in psychology. You know, initially when PTSD came on board, I think this was the mid-80s, and so a lot of the thinking back in the mid-80s, you know, if you read anything from that time period, and there were probably people who suspected it might be bigger than what they were talking about, Um, but initially PTSD was viewed as a rather small slice of individuals' experiences, which again, this isn't uncommon. When we first start to put our finger on a diagnosis, or we're first starting to identify an issue, we're typically going to look at it through a pretty specific, oftentimes narrow lens. And then that starts to open up research funds that allows us to study it more, understand it more. And it's not uncommon, I think, that we've We find out that what started maybe as a very specific, very narrow experience starts to expand and it starts to evolve. And so initially when they were talking about PTSD, again, this would have been in the mid 80s. And, you know, they were talking about it through the lens of looking at Vietnam veterans who had experienced combat war and Korean, the Korean Uh, veterans, not the Koreans like they were from that culture, but they served in the Korean conflict or that the Korean War. From my high school experiences, I think I'm remembering that we called it a conflict. It didn't actually ever rise to the wording of war, although it was. That's kind of who we were looking at. It's not like they were the first combat veterans who exhibited PTSD. You know, certainly we had veterans combat veterans returning from world war one world war two i'm sure even the civil war the revolutionary war any war that we've experienced right and that's just in america i'm sure that any surviving combat veteran in any war you know was having these symptoms you know the language we kind of used following world war two and our world war one and then world war two was more like shell shock we talked about them having shell shock which I, I get that maybe early on, that's the best wording we could come up with. And, and then we saw that start to evolve and we started to recognize, oh, this is like post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think actually fits what they were seeing, even when they were using the language of shell shock. I think PTSD actually fits it better. We just didn't have that vocabulary. But initially when they were talking about PTSD, They were referencing what today we would call single incident PTSD. So what is single incident PTSD? Well, it might be like a really bad car accident that, you know, is very traumatizing. It might be an incident for combat veterans that was highly traumatizing. Or it might even be several incidents during this uh, particular tour of duty that they served that was very traumatizing and they had a lot of Traumatic events that happened during that time period. But when we're talking about PTSD, we're seeing that maybe overall the person was stable until this event happened. And then they have the symptoms that still likely included like unresolved energy in the body, energy that's not anchored to time and space, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, sleep disturbance, reliving the traumatic event. All of these are symptoms that folks with PTSD experience. And then they have environmental triggers that, you know, lead them back to re-experiencing this unresolved traumatic event. And what we know is they're just going to need some treatment around this to help them move through that and move into some healing. Now during this time period, let me think, I think I wanted to say something else right there. So let me pause for a minute. I think I was going to say something about Oh, I know. When I was early in my career, again, I was working with substance addiction and we talked, we talked in the field a lot about rehabbing our clients, right? Or, I mean, one of the th- where areas we offered, it wasn't, we didn't offer, where I worked, we were not offering residential care, although that was certainly available, but we would more offer like intensive outpatient therapy. But, you know, it was still commonly looked at under that umbrella of rehab. And I remember having a conversation with my supervisor at the time, who was a great person. And, you know, occasionally I'll reach way, way back in my mind, because this was a long time ago. And I remember something that he said or that came from our conversations and discussions. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. And I forgot about that had that experience last week with a client but we were talking about rehabbing right that they needed rehab they need which you know he was talking about like they need to get back to this place of being functional and I remember saying to him like but most of our clients never had that period of time like they they were never actually stable and so I feel like there needs to be a different word cuz like we are not rehabbing them we are maybe having them for the very first time like they're not we're not returning them to a place of functioning that they lost because of trauma i mean they they lost any stability way way long ago and we are trying to create that after the fact and moving forward you know and i mean he was open to my thoughts or my Questions or my misunderstandings, or whatever. And he was kind of like, Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. A lot of our clients, we are not actually rehabbing them. We're not returning them to a place of functioning. We're trying to make them functional with what has been very dysfunctional in their life and has been highly traumatizing for them. So I think just it's helpful to understand that. Also, during this time period, that you know, we're recognizing PTSD as a thing, and it's being studied and understood more. And We saw some trauma modalities that developed during this time period. EMDR was one that developed during this time period, or immersive therapy. Sometimes that's called exposure trauma therapy. Hypnotherapy was happening as a way to try to resolve PTSD. Now, I'll just add here that as far as I know, there's not a lot of solid evidence that hypnotherapy works to resolve PTSD or really other issues. I've seen some papers written about its effectiveness with like simple phobias, like maybe a fear of flying on an airplane, right? And that hypnotherapy can help with that. But if it's complex, I don't, I haven't found research that says, again, I haven't, I haven't done an exhaustive read of the stuff out there on hypnotherapy but that's my understanding so i'm going to mention it but i'm also going to say i don't think there's a lot of solid data supporting hypnotherapy as a modality but these you know several modalities came about during this time period trying to address people diagnosed with ptsd i don't know that they fully captured what we needed to or that we had the full understanding of what we needed, but that's kind of where we began. It also reminds me in Dr. Patrick Carnes' book, The Betrayal Bond, because he was doing work in the field at this same time period, mid-80s into the 90s. I think his book, Out of the Shadow, came out in the early 80s. And so in his book, The Betrayal Bond, He has a trauma scale he talks about where on the one side, it's talking about impact. And then over along this line, I'm sure there's names for them. I'm just not recalling them. It's kind of late and it's talking about consistency. Actually, I think it's impact and frequency. So again, you can experience something once and maybe it registers really high on the impact, like it's high trauma, but it only happens once. Not that the high impact doesn't count or doesn't matter. You can also have things that maybe are moderate level in terms of impact or even low level in terms of impact, but they happen every day or they happen multiple times a week. So we're seeing that frequency escalate because it's just happening so often. And, you know, often they're scoring even higher. Those folks with like, low impact high frequency, sometimes they're scoring worse on PTSD assessments than those with the high impact less frequency or one frequency. So I think that's also really good to look at. If you haven't checked out that book, I highly recommend it. Also during the same time period, we were looking at family systems. If I remember correctly, when I entered the field in 1994 1995 there was a longitudinal study that had recently wrapped up and the research was being released and it was being read and it was making its way around remember my supervisor introduced me to it and the research was looking at characteristics or traits or behaviors that come from alcoholic families so again this is relevant to the field that I entered into And, you know, we're starting to look at family systems where, yeah, sure. They're in alcoholic homes. There might be several higher impact incidents that happen, but also there's a lot of frequency, whether they're high impact and high frequency or whether they're, you know, high impact a few times with a lot of things that are every day or very frequent so this was starting to be looked at in terms of family systems and understood in terms of family dysfunction so some of these like maybe frequent traumas might look like not really having a parent who is present whether that's because they're high or intoxicated or hungover you know we also might have a secondary parent who is overly focused on the addict's behavior and trying to regulate the family so that the addict doesn't have a reason to drink again, or doesn't have a reason to rage again, or whatever that is. So those are maybe frequent things, or maybe the, you know, partner of the alcoholic is trying to have a job that provides some consistent income so that they're not reliant upon somebody who keeps getting fired or losing their health insurance. That was my family for sure. So we were starting to understand all of this, you know, in terms of PTSD, in terms of impact and frequency. We're starting to see some trauma modalities come about. Then we're starting to look at dysfunctional family system and the impacts on the different family members. And I think it's just like, I wasn't there at the beginning of all of this happening. I wasn't certainly old enough in the 80s to be in a professional career. But, you know, I came about in the 90s, in the mid 90s, and or I entered the field. I didn't come about in the mid 90s, but I entered the field in the mid 90s. And it's been interesting to see the evolution and the growth in this particular area. And I think we're moving in the right direction. I, I know there's some professionals out there who disagree with me. I think there's a lot more who agree with me, or or, let me rephrase that. I agree with them because they probably have, you know, they're doing the research or they were doing the research than those who disagree with this. I think some of the people who disagree with all of this or think we've taken trauma way further than it ever should have been. I just think they haven't quite done their own work yet. So anyway, that's been interesting to see the evolution. I think it's a good thing. So the last thing I want to say in this podcast episode, I want to talk about the healing of PTSD, healing of complex PTSD, healing our triggers, our responses to the triggers, and starting to create options when triggers happen. Because one of the things that usually coincides, especially if our trauma began in childhood is we didn't have options like what are we gonna go live someplace else are we gonna have different options or our parents like we you know again that i draw on this from the 12-step literature we were powerless over our childhoods so i think creating a plan in which when i get triggered i have options i've chosen those options i know that they work I know that they get me through the trigger. They get me through the previous traumatic event. Like, I think that in and of itself is helpful. So we're not just living with this nervous system that just gets yanked in all sorts of different directions. And these triggers and these past traumatic events show up over and over and over again. And there's nothing really that we can do. I think rarely is there something we cannot do to aid in our own healing, and I think that's really great news. So again, understanding our window of tolerance, understanding how we need to emotionally regulate can be really helpful. Now, I understand that takes a lot of practice. And so, you know, if I introduce the window of tolerance to a client, or I'm introducing this concept of dysregulation and pointing out how my observations of their dysregulation are, I'm also telling them like, I don't expect you to change this by next week. I know that this takes a lot of practice, takes a lot of patience from yourself to let yourself practice this. You know, oftentimes when I'm working with a new client, they don't understand. They don't understand what happened to them. They don't understand their triggers. They don't understand why they happen. They usually have no understanding of the window of tolerance, which is how they came to be reaching out to a therapist in the first place. So, you know, let's say I have a new client and they tend to move through their life with a high degree of hypervigilance. And they feel like this hypervigilance is needed. It's actually what's keeping them safe. I I typically avoid getting into power struggles with clients. I typically avoid applying my expectations, or I don't really even have expectations. I certainly don't have a timeline on when this should happen for clients, because I don't know, right? I know where we need to go. I know what we need to cover. I know what it looks like when it starts gaining traction. But like, I don't. I don't know how much time it takes and so that just has to go out the window and sometimes i'm reminding them or i'm listening for them if they have expectations or they have a timeline usually their timeline is like it needed to happen three months ago and so i'm usually saying like hey that's a lot of criticism let's just be gentle with ourselves let's trust it'll happen right when it needs to so you know i might have a new client and again they're moving through their life with a lot of hyper And I will work with them, you know, there's some unresolved chronic PTSD or complex PTSD. I've heard it used both ways. And I want to say here, there is some research that's been coming out that states that there's some crossover or there's some similarities in how unresolved complex PTSD in our brains and nervous system looks to ADD or ADHD. And... That's not super surprising to me. You know, sometimes when I'm working with a highly hyper aroused client, they can go on tangents and they're not even aware they're doing it. I have some that will like when I start with them, they can't even form a coherent thought or complete a coherent sentence. They might say a word or two, like it's hard sometimes for... Need to know where that's going because a word or two does not tell me what they're trying to convey and then they say a word or two about something totally different and then they say a word or two about something different and then they usually get frustrated and whether they're feeling some shame or they just kind of collapse in on themselves I might start to see them cry or they start to apologize and I'm just like it's okay we'll get there we'll get there you know, for me, I think it's helpful for me to just be aware this is where they are right now. And sometimes they're pretty functional outside of the therapy session, but when they come in to talk about these things, this is what shows up and that's good information for me to know. At some point, it'll be good information for my client to know, but initially I think it's it's good information for me to know. You know, sometimes, I mean, again, if they go on these tangents, I can sometimes guess like... I wonder if talking about this or saying this, like led them here, led them here. I might see a pattern there. I don't know if I'm right. I have no way of knowing if I'm right. Or I might have a client who operates and goes through their life with just a lot of hypo arousal and they shut down a lot. Um, they dissociate a lot. And so again, that's going to happen in my office. And, you know, I've had clients I work with where 10-20 minutes go by and they're dissociated for a full 10-20 minutes or half of the session they spend in shutdown and freeze. And I might say to them, it's okay. I'm just here in this space with you. It's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. I mean, in a hard freeze, they're probably not feeling much of anything. But I'll just say, it's okay. I'm here in this space with you. Sometimes, you know, eventually we get to a place where I can, you know, reflect my observations about the hypoarousal. And I'm always doing this. I'm trying to approach it very gently, non-judgmental. I usually have established enough of the relationship that I can start to address these things. And they know that I'm a safe person. They know that I'm not coming in as a threat. And I might ask them like, hey, what's the most helpful thing for me to do when you go into these dissociative states and you know sometimes they're like i don't know i don't know and i'm like okay okay well just know it's okay if it happens i'm okay with it i'll just hold space and i'll just be there with you in the in the shutdown and that's okay you know sometimes eventually they start to say uh, um, might be helpful to it, it or they might say it is helpful to say It's okay. I'm here with you in this space. It's helpful for you to just wait for me to come back into the room and to kind of come out of this dissociative state. Um, Eventually, I start to see a lessening of the dissociative states that show up in my office, and we can have more conversations about it. And then they might start becoming aware of when it happens outside of the office. You know, and not everybody is either in hyperarousal or hypoarousal. We can do both, right? Our nervous system, it's very adaptable that way. It can do both. Or, you know, sometimes with hypervigilant, they're talking, they're talking a lot and they're going on a lot of side tangents. And, you know, I, I usually will know they're starting to make some traction in their progress when they might say something like, I know I'm going on a tangent, but I will loop it back in. Because sometimes early on, they're not answering the question I asked. They're on a tangent. And then they are on the tangent. And then they might look at me and be like, I don't know why. I, I don't know why I told you that. I don't know where I was. And so you know, I'm just looking for these small shifts, like, I know I'm kind of going on a tangent, but it does relate. And I'll loop it back to the question you asked. Okay, great. That's some indication of some settling, not as much as we're going to need, right. But some progress is happening and some settling in the nervous system maybe some development of the window of tolerance is happening the other thing I think that I've probably said this before but I think it's helpful to just again re- repeat it that like I usually talk to clients about diagnosis and I I try to I mean I understand that diagnoses can be helpful for people in terms of understanding what's going on for them and a diagnosis should never be used in a shaming way. If it's not helpful, like, I don't know why we would do it. And yet, you know, I mean, the mental health field has a history of doing things that weren't necessarily helpful to clients. And some therapists still do that. But I think, you know, when we talk about triggers, helping them understand it in a way that says like, there's a reason these things are happening. It's not just that you're making bad choices there's no choice happening in a trigger right but we can again develop this inner observer we can have coping skills that we start to put in place that open up options that were not available when the original trauma happened and so now we can start to actually make progress with the triggers we may never eliminate fully the triggers and i don't know that the triggers themselves are the biggest problem right i think the triggers are simply manifestations of a larger problem. And when we start to address that larger problem, the trigger still might happen. I I mean, I do see from time to time, clients will be like, wow, this thing happened. And it was after the fact that I was like, oh, that would have totally thrown me for days or even weeks. And I just responded like, I just did what I needed to do, right? It didn't really bother me that much. So, you know, sometimes we develop some resiliency to the trauma and we have it more resolved and anchored in a time and place and so that can be helpful right that it we kind of get some um, space between us and the triggers and the reliving of the traumatic event but also it's I think it's important to understand that when there is more single incident PTSD it doesn't mean that that's not severe or that you would have less symptoms You'll still have, you know, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, reliving of the experience, not being anchored to time and place. All of those things will happen with PTSD and they happen with complex PTSD. But if we have more stability and then a traumatic event happens, healing the PTSD can be a quicker process. There's not a quick fix to healing the PTSD. I wouldn't say it's quick, but we might be talking about a year or two, as opposed to, you know, three to 10 years for complex PTSD. It just, more of PTSD, it doesn't have the multi-layers to it that complex PTSD has. And I think it's important to know those things. You know, with with clients, I usually want to make them aware, like, I wouldn't even say I always do it. I never always do anything. With some clients, I might say in a first session, like, you know, you it sounds like you fit the diagnostic criteria for several of the categories of complex PTSD. Again, we can keep talking about that. I'm not giving you that diagnosis right now because it's a first session. And usually in that moment, I've kind of I have a sense of their nervous system and I'm checking in with my nervous system. Cause my nervous system is what gives me a sense of their nervous system. And I'm kind of passing it by my nervous system. Like, how would this feel in their body if I said this? And if I think it might be helpful or kind of a relief to them to hear that there's an explanation, I might offer it again. This is a high level. I'm not going to unpack the details of it because. They don't know me and I don't know them. And so we've got to build that trust. And sometimes I don't say it until we're a year down the road. And then I kind of mention this, like, hey, I I noticed this early on. I definitely think it's worth having a couple of sessions talking about it now. And I'll usually, you know, tell them why I didn't bring it up before or why I'm bringing it up now. You know they might have some questions around that i'm okay with that and i've also had situations where you know i've worked with even family systems where let's say it's a fairly healthy functioning family system and something happened to the entire system that impacted them right not anybody doing anything wrong within the family system but just a traumatic event happened and It impacted the family members across the board. Years ago, I worked with an individual who, I think he was like two or three when the traumatic event hit the whole family. And they had like a, I think he was the second to youngest and they had a baby that passed away unexpectedly at home. And that impacted the whole family system, right? Of course it did. And they did go in and get family family therapy around this traumatic event, and at the time they didn't involve this youngest member of the family. Again, he would have been like, I want to say two or three. And I'm not saying that that wasn't the right choice, that they didn't include him in the healing for the rest of the family. But I started working with him. He was probably 14 or 15. I don't think he was driving at the time. But he was like 14 or 15. And he was definitely having behavior that, you know, I didn't know initially that this had happened. Mom didn't know to give this to me. She's just like, something's going on with him. Here's the behaviors. We don't understand what they are, right? And it came out in a session that I was having with him when he I mean, I think I only knew him as the youngest. I mean, I wasn't aware that there was this younger sibling that had passed away. And he made me aware of that. And then I kind of had a session with mom and was just like, Hey, what, what happened here? Cause he brought it up and she was actually a little surprised that he remembered as much as he did, or could speak to it as much as he did. And I'm like, I, I think these symptoms that we're seeing go back to this time period, right for him. And, you know, so I just said like. I, I think it's great that you guys were able to go as a family and to work on this trauma as a family unit and have some healing. And that's awesome. And we're going to have to do it again for this youngest family member. Cause they didn't get to be part of that communal grieving and that communal healing and they need to be, you know, I, like, and I'll usually say, I'm not saying the wrong decision was made. I mean, that's very young. I don't even know if it might have been too damaging to have him part of that. I'm not saying it's, it's the wrong choice. I'm saying it's needed now. And so, you know, we need to get the whole family in and everybody has to be willing to go back to that day that that happened. And many of you have had more healing around that. And there's some resolution that happened to it and it's definitely anchored in a time and place of the past, but not for this kid, not for this youngest family member. And so we need to go back and support him in his grief. And you guys need to talk about your own grief and your own reactions that day and how hard things were. And we just have to do this to bring this family member into the healing of the family. And they did that and it was beautiful. It was beautiful work, right? And we kind of wrapped up that. He was, he was doing so much better. These maladaptive symptoms had really stopped. And he was getting his own healing. And he was getting, fa- you know, he, he was being brought into the family system with his ability to heal as well and adding to that family system. And definitely he saw the willingness of every family member to go back for him. There were a lot of beautiful moments working with that family. And, you know, we wrapped up and we were kind of done with what I was helping them with and I wished them well. And I, I want to say, God, well, he was probably 20, this particular client of mine. So maybe, you know, six, five or six years later, mom sends me an email and she's like, I don't even know if you remember us, but I just wanted to tell you and send you this picture with his permission of who he is today and what's going on in his life. And I mean, those are just priceless moments as a therapist. And I'm, you know, like, of course I remember you guys. I'm so happy to hear he's doing so well and he's functioning in his life and he has a good life. I'm so happy to hear he has a good life. And I've had that a couple of times where I have to kind of talk about like, you know, one of the family members was left off from the family healing that happened and we have to go back for them. And we can't, we can't lose sight of them in this and and again i'm not saying it should have looked different from the get-go maybe not i like i totally think sometimes what needs to be discussed maybe isn't appropriate for two or three-year-old ears or four and five-year-old ears and we might be overloading their system to bring them in as part of that process but there will come a time in which they need to be brought in they need to be looped in and in order to do that everyone has to go back to that day or to that time period and we have to reconnect with those emotions and yeah there might be tears shed and emotional memories come up and that's okay that's okay Um, and usually I'm like reminding them here's why we're doing this and so I think healing can happen from PTSD And healing can happen from complex PTSD. Again, there might be different time periods involved, whether it's more single incident or complex PTSD. And I do think you should be informed as a client at some time period. I can't say when that is that there is PTSD or complex PTSD. I think that our relationship with our spouse, you know, if we have trauma in our family of origin. That's probably going to surface in our relationship with our spouse. I'm thinking of, I believe it's Harville Hendricks work, or he was the first one that I think said this, and I always like to give credit if I can, where he talks about often the trauma is relational and the healing needs to be relational as well. And for many of my listeners, that would include me, my healing was never going to come about from the people who caused the worst of it. That just, that wasn't going to happen. But there's still options for healing. And I think that's really great. Sometimes, though, our spouse doesn't know how to do that. And sometimes our spouse has perpetrated a continuation of that, you know, probably unintentionally. But when they become aware of it, we have to help them understand how to become part of the solution instead of just being another person in line that's part of the problem and you know when I talk to a lot of my clients about that they want to be part of the solution they just didn't know how to be they maybe had a sense that they were part of the problem and they may have thought like that's why I kept it secret which that's not actually helpful right and so but they don't know they don't know how to do it in the right way because their own attachment issues because of their own trauma. And so we're having to learn this in therapy under the guidance of therapists and understanding that, you know, the goal is always to heal from the unresolved trauma. When we do that, I, again, I don't think we eliminate the triggers, but we see a significant decrease in the amount of triggers that happen and we can figure out the pathway through the trigger to the other side where I'm talking about it and I'm able to express what I need to my partner's able to show up in that space and validate and I'll just say this you know sometimes when when a person is triggered there's no right or wrong like here's the script to give them because again when they're triggered and that threat system is active I don't know what they're going to need right and so With time, maybe they can start to express that, you know, and sometimes it comes out kind of harsh. Again, anytime we're communicating in the threat system, it's going to come with an edge because we're in our threat system. So they may be like, get away from me. What are you doing? You know, we might be like, hey, do you want a hug? And they're like, no, get away from me. Just, yes, it has an edge. The threat system always comes with an edge. For some people, they're just nonverbal in their trigger. And again, just being able to say, Hey, I'm here for you. I can give you space, I can keep checking in on you. And sometimes we're gonna have to figure that out later. You know, we're, we're gonna have to check in with my own nervous system. How does it feel if I walk away? You know, can I keep checking back in like every half hour, just like, hey, just checking in on you. If they don't respond, you know, we might be like, You can just nod if you want food or a drink of water. I'm happy to get that. When you're ready to talk, I want to be there for you. You know, again, this is where we're showing up with that attachment language. But every time we're kind of have to to feel our way through that. And that's normal. They're not trying to manipulate us or gaslight us. So I hope that's helpful talking about triggers. I hope you learn some things. I hope you're understanding triggers in a more effective and helpful way, both for yourself and your relationship. Understanding that our response to triggers is not a choice, but we do have to work towards having a plan where we have options available to us. We have to start to understand our triggers and then, you know, again, fill ourselves in on that backstory that leads to those emotional triggers or those emotional responses, as well as filling in our partner on that. And you might do that with the help of a therapist. And then at the end of this episode, I want to remind you that not I'm not reminding you yet that your story matters. I'll get there. I'm reminding you that I started a Patreon channel this year. And I'm gonna be having bonus content monthly. And so if you want to become a member, head over to the Patreon app. You can look for Thanks for Sharing with no spaces. You should pull up something that's recognizable, similar colors to the thumbnail in this podcast, and you can become a member. And if you're not able to do that at this time, I understand that. I'll still be putting stuff out on the regular channels in which you access podcasts. There will still be good content put out on those channels. If you can't financially afford right now to become a member, I understand that. So I just wanted to remind you that that is an option. If you are interested in bonus material, some bonus content, some bonus episodes, feel free to head over to the Patreon app. And now I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastering. I am enough. Amen.